Greetings and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screens look at the art of GMing. Joining us today is one of the stars of Hyper RPG's Shadowrun Corporate Sins game and a founding member of NerdProv, Tony Beeman. Hello! Thanks for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to have you on. I like to get started way back at the very beginning. When did you first get involved with RPGs? <laughs> um, I was at Boy Scout camp in the mid-80s, in the Smoky Mountains, actually. And I remember we were supposed to be roughing it. And this older kid, Ryan Shelton, who'd been in Scouts for a while, came up and invited us to play Dungeons & Dragons, which I'd heard of. And I was very confused because we weren't allowed to bring anything. So I knew there was no game board or anything like that. But he had made dice using sticks and uh, we started playing and I just completely fell in love. You know, we had no rules at the time other than DM Fiat because we had no books. But that was the 80s. And in one way or another, I've pretty much been hooked into role playing games ever since. Now, it being in the 80s, was there any fear of satanic influence? Yeah, this was Tennessee. Uh, not from me, but, um, you know, my parents were, they were a little concerned, but, you know, they were, they were people who encouraged me to be curious. So they kind of looked into it and they were like, oh, this seems fine. We don't know what our neighbors are concerned about. And that was the end of that for me. I did have a couple of friends who weren't allowed to play though. So how long did you play with that first group? That was just sort of a one night camping adventure. Um, I went home, and this being East Tennessee in the 80s, there were no real game stores. So uh, I was at my grandparents in Indiana, and I convinced my parents to drive me over a city. And we picked up the uh, the old basic like 1983 red and blue boxes for D&D. &D. I brought those home and kind of ran some friends through the sample adventure. Uh, we had a ton of fun with that, but uh, my friends at the time were, they were more into hunting than things like that. And I was simply super lucky that my parents sent me to school in seventh grade to Oak Ridge, where the uh, Manhattan Project, a lot of the research for that was done. There's still a national lab there. And so there were tons of kids from all over who'd come with their scientist parents. And they brought, you know, all sorts of weird RPGs with them and were super into it. So for the 80s, I was really lucky to have, by seventh grade, uh, a lot of kids playing, you know, Shadowrun or the Star Trek game. Because we didn't have stores, we tended to have like one book from each of these, so we were making up a lot of the rules. I was very lucky. When would you say you got into your first regular group? I guess uh, in high school, we had Jordan Weissman's Star Trek game by FASA at the time. We kind of had a regular group that met. It was very, you know, as middle school and high school games tend to be, very weird. You know, we had like Starfleet officers dual-wielding Ferengi whips, kind of doing whatever we wanted. Up until then, you know, you'd pretty much get to someone's house, you go down the basement, you'd spend four hours creating a character, and then it was time to go home. So that was my first, like, sustained adventure with characters who lasted more than at least two sessions. With such a potpourri of different games and seeming like each person maybe specialized GMing in one did you prefer GMing at the time, or did you prefer playing? I loved GMing. Uh, what I really loved was world building. I lived about half an hour away from most of my friends, so I built these entire worlds. I still have some of them. 
you know, that never had a player set foot in them, but I would have like the top 50 cities determined and like maps and rule systems and names of important NPCs. So uh, I guess my first foray was more into preparing for DMing. And it wasn't, you know, I'd, I'd have uh, other kids come over and we'd get into it and I hadn't really learned the whole like, you know, leaving some room to be generous and let the players decide what we're doing. So uh, <laughs> I don't know that I was a good GM until college. And that was when I kind of created, really just after college, my first sustained RPG group that really kept a session going for more than a year. And I feel like if I tried to list it, I would come up short. What's your history with improv? I did, uh, as many improvisers will tell you, some terrible improv in college. I went to Purdue. When I moved to Seattle in 98, um, I guess I started in about 2000 doing a lot of improvisation. If you're into Dungeons & Dragons or really any RPG, pen and paper RPG, and uh, you've never gotten a chance to see or take an improv class, um, I it it will feel like you're at home, especially if you find a good class. So the minute I started, I was hooked, and I've kind of worked my way up. And now I spend probably four nights a week doing some kind of improvisation. Do you feel like your history of GMing led you into improv? Absolutely. Um, I think a lot of people think of improvisation as like the funny short games, like whose line is it anyway? Uh, but there's actually a ton of improvisation that's we call long form, but it's it's really about, you know, playing these characters. You are actually role playing. I think there's a element of discovery in like great role playing games uh, is a strong element. It's a necessary element of improvisation. Like if you're not working together to discover something neither of you expected. Uh, there's no reason not to just be doing scripted stuff on stage. How would you say focusing on improvisation has helped you as a GM? I think that thing I was alluding to earlier about I would spend, I would have too much of an idea of what I wanted to happen before I discovered improvisation. You know, many people have heard that term, yes and, in improvisation. Um, really what that means is, if you and I are performing in a scene, I'm going to listen to what you say, and I'm not just going to listen. I'm going to accept that's the reality, and I'm going to add to that rather than bringing in my own new crazy idea and kind of ignoring what you said. These days when I DM or GM, I, you know, I, I do a lot of planning around the world, but I really, I try really hard not to decide here's exactly what we're going to do today because I want my players to decide that, and I actually want to be surprised by what happens myself. That makes it a lot more, I think you can get burnout if you're not experiencing that surprise yourself as a GM. You know, I plan this character to be a villain, but uh, they've made friends with them. And, you know, why not, right? Let's see where this goes. Have you ever felt that the background with improvisation could hamstring your ability to tell a story? Like moving it too far away from what you had intended? I think I have to be very careful with players up front to make sure that if I'm GMing, they know what they're getting into and that we're on the same page. I will sometimes, in fact, I will often as a GM, let the story override the rule set. And that doesn't mean I don't enjoy working with players who are very rules oriented. And I certainly don't want to invalidate their expectations of the world, right? If somebody's spend a lot of time creating their character around a very specific interpretation of the rules. I want them to have fun. But I also 
I'm pretty careful up front uh, when I invite people into my group to make sure that they understand, you know, I'm not going to let the rule set uh, keep us from going where the story needs to go. How long have you been GMing for the group you're currently GMing for? Let's see. I have, um, I guess, I have two groups. Um, one's been on hiatus for quite some time. Um, we played about four years straight, and then babies were born. And so I suspect that group will pick back up when said babies uh, get to an age where they can be running around upstairs somewhat unattended. So, college. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then I have a second group uh, I play, I've been playing with about four years, I guess. We've been kind of on a long, sustained adventure. We're about to transition that over into a um, sort of episodic adventure, like in the same world, but not necessarily the same characters, except for occasional visits. Are those both within the same game system? Yeah, they. Um, that one started as D and D four. Um, I'd kind of my first campaign was D and D three zero, and then three five, and we've always just kept that in that system. We've never taken the time to move it to Pathfinder. So when I came back to it, four was out. We started playing four while five was under development. I think we quickly learned what a lot of people did, what kind of what drove a lot of people away from four. Um, so we moved to five pretty quickly during the playtest part of five. So I would say the primary, most of those, at least three of those four years has been in uh, five. Having started way back at the red and blue box, do you have a favorite Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> it's, you know, I have so much nostalgia for um, for second, uh, well, for yeah, AD&D second edition. I don't know that that's really the rule set so much as, you know, I read all the Dragonlance, all the Forgotten Realms books as a kid. Um, I had all those splat books. Um, so I was very tied to that kind of interpretation of the world. You know, while Dragonlance still, like, kind of before they changed the world a lot, Forgotten Realms, while it was still, you know, Elminster running around, I was very tied to that kind of I guess the culture of AD&D second edition. But in terms of, I guess, as an adult, I kind of don't have a ton of time to, you know, follow a very complex rule system. I liked 3.5 and I like 5.0 a lot as well. I find neither of them gets in my way. It's very quick as a GM to kind of come up with a quick ruling. And also given that my Wednesday nights are spent playing Shadowrun, I get all my very complicated rule sets out of the way on Wednesday. Do you start to sweat a little when you see D6s now? <laughs> a little bit. Um, it's certainly, especially since we play Shadowrun online, dealing with that number of dice has been an interesting challenge. So they take place in the same game system, but do they take place in the same world? Yeah, uh, this is sort of what happened. I um, I'd planned this adventure... It was originally because I wanted my players to have a keep, because I wanted to get into a, one of those campaigns where you're kind of managing your own keep and you know having to defend it. Just based on who they are, I kind of knew it would be a fun set of characters. But we ended up dealing with the history of this castle by having kind of a time travel thing going on. And my players decided, and I should have expected this, I didn't, that rather than really caring about the keep, they wanted to try to change history. 
And this is an example where I, as an M-Pfizer, I'm like, okay, that's not what I planned, but let's see where that leads us. And where it's led us is to them entirely changing the politics of this world. It had kind of begun as a early forgotten realms, like imaginary coast that doesn't actually exist, where humans had just arrived on elven shores and had sort of subjugated the elves. They decided to change history because they had a lot of elves in the group so that elves had subjugated humans. So I wasn't sure where to go from this. And a lot of my players kind of had said they want a, a chance to play maybe some evil characters or certainly some more mercenary characters. So I thought, um, why not have this sort of time change uh, be codified into the present time? And let's do a sort of almost cop style show about guards in a city. Uh, where they each night get to pick which you know which of these many characters that work in the guard force of the city. Each night they arrive, they pick who they're going to play, and they have to kind of investigate. And they'll have a chance to play, you know, some underhanded characters, some noble characters, um, and we'll kind of have quick runs uh, that last no more than two sessions. Are you playing with fellow improvisers? Yes, uh, I guess, yeah, everyone in that group is currently an improviser. In fact, uh, kind of, we do improvise Star Trek. So I play Dr. McCoy within that group. Uh, and so we have Kirk, we have Nurse Chapel, uh, Janine's our director, we have a red shirt, and we have an alien, <laughs> all making up this Dungeons & Dragons group. Have you ever dual-wielded Ferengi whips? Uh, no, not in our show, uh, nor would Janine, who directs us, I think, ever allow that into either our gaming or our onstage. <laughs> Just want to feel like a kid again. I do. I actually told Jordan Weissman about this, and he had one of the most horrified looks on his face, uh, partly because one of his big conflicts with um, Gene Roddenberry and his people were that they would only let him do the Star Trek role-playing game back in the day if he kept the violence below a certain level. What about the other group you're currently gymming for? That is a very long-standing Forgotten Realms campaign. Um, that's the one that came out of 3.0 and 3.5. Um, that's gone from level 1 to, I think they're at level 15 or 16 now. And about 20 years have passed. Have they maintained the same characters throughout, or is death fairly prevalent? We've had, I think, two characters die. We, you know, it's Forgotten Realms, so resurrection is possible, um, but I tend to make it very rare. What we found is by the time they manage to resurrect one of their old characters, they're often in love with their new character. So the only two characters who've died both did get resurrected, but are now NPCs. Does the party still encounter the NPCs? Yes. In fact, one of them has become a bit of an adversary. Not necessarily evil just at cross odds with the current group. Um, and that's always fun. Do you control them as the NPCs now, or do the original players act it out? Um, I've taken over those characters. Uh, I'll occasionally... I, my players are very trustworthy in terms of they're never going to argue things to their advantage so much as the way they believe the story should go. So I will take their input sometimes. But the primary character who is at odds with them is a very arrogant bard. He's not a real complicated character, so I'm usually pretty confident I'm getting him right. So I 
feel that I could only assume that this group is the type to do voices for characters. <laughs> yes, they are very into their voices. They're very into picking a lot of flaws for their characters, a lot of blind spots, pretty much through and through. I don't really have any players currently who are in the min-maxing. Aside from voices, what else do you and the group do to enhance the immersion? I'm really big into building maps. Um, I do a lot of graphic design just kind of on the side. So I will design a lot of maps in Photoshop, print them out, put them on foam cord, and kind of build them up into um, pieces that I can lay out on the table. Historically, I've done that. Uh, lately, I've kind of been considering, can I use something like Roll20, put it up on the screen? Because as much as I like having that physical representation on the table, kind of that earlier thing I was getting at, where I don't want to plan too much ahead because I want them to have the freedom to go where they want, I think something like Roll20 would let me have a lot of kind of generic maps on hand. So if they decide, you know what, we're not going to the castle, we're going to go to the old bog, I'll have something I can bring up. Do you do anything like playing music or dimming the lights? Yeah, uh, we live in a very windowed apartment, so, and we play during the day, so lights are harder. Um, but we use, um, I always forget the name, it's Sirenscape, I think. I think that's the name of it. It really lets you set up music ahead of time with a lot of different moods. Um, so I'll have like Old Haunted Swamp, um, and I can use GM easily kind of click over when we get into battle, things like that, to change up the music. Four years with a group is pretty long, but they still find ways to surprise you? Uh, very much so. And they're, um, you know, when I say surprise, they play their characters very authentically. They work really hard behind the scenes at trying to see things from their character's point of view. So we have a couple of chaos monkeys, but I mean that in the best of ways that, like, they find that reason to be, you know to kind of disagree with the obvious solution. And they're usually very good at justifying it. But, you know, there's times where they're just screwing with me, and uh, I try to roll with that as well. Would you say the party in character are good guys, or just murder hobos, as the saying goes? We don't have murder hobos. Let's see. We have, uh, and this is where you'll be able to tell these are performers, we have a um, an elf but he's very into elf weed um this is washington state so pot is legal and the player who plays that is uh definitely a proponent so i'll but is it legal in the game it is not and we've actually kind of made that a big thing when i said humans had subjugated elves we really did a lot of kind of work around you know this is elven culture and it's a part of their life but he's the person who's kind of made me come up with like, all right, well, statistically, what are the effects? Like, what are the negative effects of this? And maybe a couple of positives on the character itself. So the queen of the humans is Nancy Reagan in this world. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of a good, uh, probably a good way of looking at it. And then we have kind of a representative of that city, our paladin, who um, uh, that player plays him very, you know, lawful good but only in the human sense of lawful good. So he and the elf are constantly at odds. And again, they're good at not letting the conflict become problematic, but making it interesting. We have a dwarven bagpipe playing bard, Moira, played by Janine Clark, who's also on the Shadowrun show. Um, and then we have a sort of a very taciturn dragonborn, which 
I will say uh, I have trouble getting into Dragonborn because they were added to D&D after my like nostalgic years. And so I haven't quite wrapped my brain around them. How about Warforged? Uh, we don't have Warforged except as NPCs. Yeah, I'm a little bit the same. I mean, I went through a Planescape phase, so I'm definitely... I have that side of me that loves these crazy out-of-the-blue constructs, things like that. Um, sometimes it's just hard for me to figure out, if we're doing high fantasy, how those fit in. And I think one of the reasons I'm excited about doing the like city guard adventure is there's a lot more room to do kind of these weirder entities that... Um, you know, that may show up in kind of an urban fantasy environment. So you mentioned the paladin was lawful good. Is alignment something that you hold the players to? I um, I make them justify their choices if they seem out of character, but I'm not... I go back and forth on, like, the D&D alignment system. I think it's because I'm analytical and, like, role-playing games are all about codifying non-codifiable things into numbers i get the reason for it but like i'm never i'm never gonna apply a very harsh choice to like him losing his powers because he makes a choice if that choice is easily justified in his perspective for instance i don't actually think of him as a good character because he's a bit racist against elves he's got these choices but from his point of view I think he's, you know, from his point of view, he's doing it for the right reasons. So I allow him to call that lawful good. Can you think of the last time when you told a player they couldn't do something because it was too out of character? I've stopped and asked them to justify a couple of times. I think every time I've done that, they've either given me a good justification that made sense or uh, they've kind of changed what they were about to do. I think we have a group that's interested enough in talking about, like, why are you making that choice? Uh, Janine's in a role-playing group that has a bit more of that problems. You know, every character starts to resemble uh, the same character if played by the same player. So the very, like, kindly good wizard suddenly turns into a murder hobo. And I'm a big fan as GM of kind of being careful at who's in my group from the get-go to avoid some of those problems. So what do you do before a session to get ready for it? I like maps. I don't know why, but I just it's not just to have it for the players. It's actually for me to understand here's the environment we're going into. I make sure I understand like the motivation of all the kind of powers that are at play. I think about some good cinematic feeling locations to have ready to go, like all right, is this a highly trafficked area? Do we have a chance for like a carriage chasing another carriage? Or, you know, there's a river here. What's the bridge like? That's probably a likely place for an encounter. Because I'm very much a fan of, of trying to create these unique combat encounters that have like movement, you know, like if in the deal of case of two carriages, right? Like movement applied or in the case of a bridge, like three dimensions. I try to pick out a bunch of those my players are likely to encounter. Um, and then the rest of it, I kind of go through each of my players, and usually I have a sense of what that player views as a reward and what that character would view as a reward or a punishment. I really try to never punish my players. I try to punish their characters. And when I say punish, I just mean uh, harsh consequences. I think about those uh, by what my players want. Because when we started this, I 
I come from a group that was very loot-centric, and I thought, great, I'm going to give them these really cool, unique magic items. And then they went three adventures without even identifying them. And I was like, all right, well, clearly I need to rethink. Um, like, this is a group of people who want social rewards, not monetary rewards. What would you say the percentage of your party encounters are in terms of combat versus social? I would say... Um, I would say 50-50 right now. I'm kind of rethinking that, though, because we're an older group. We tend to play just once a month, and we'll play for, you know, maybe six hours or seven hours at a time uh, with breaks. And in that, my group tends to be pretty slow with combat and pretty interested in the social. So I'm actually probably going to limit some of the combat a bit and kind of favor these more interesting one or two combats you know, per session. What is your process for building named NPCs that you plan on having with a featured role, I suppose you could say? <laughs> I'm a big fan of, like, what are the buttons for my characters, right? So, like, my Dwarven Bard is married to an elf, so she's very sensitive to anybody who's kind of weird about that. Or, you know, I mentioned my elf who's kind of anti-authoritarian um, and enjoys elf weed. For him, I may have a very authoritarian figure who they have to work with because I know that character is really going to get under his skin. Or for Mo Moira, I may have, you know, an elf character who doesn't think elves should be married to dwarves and is willing to bring it up. But I kind of start with those buttons. Like I said, I tend to pay attention to who are all the different powers at play, because I want my players to have a chance to align themselves. I don't want to decide who they're going to align themselves with. I try to give them a reason to align themselves with each group, but at least one kind of major conflict they're probably going to have to figure out if they're okay with. How do you come up with names for the NPCs? <laughs> I tend to use online generators for some things. I guess as an improviser, I have to come up with a lot of names. A favorite trick of mine is just to use childhood friends and change their names just enough to sound sort of fantastic. I'll draw from like Scotland and Ireland. I was just in Scotland and driving around like everywhere I went just felt like I was in a D&D &D campaign just because of the names of things. And what about NPCs that the party has forced you to come up with on the spot? I have a list of about five names. Uh, after that, it's a bit random, and I've made a couple of unfortunate choices. I remember I, on the spot, had to come up with a fairly ridiculous... Uh, he was sort of an enemy of our bard character, and I went with, like, uh, it was like Dindy Pantalunus. And I think the party knew that I regretted the name. They immediately befriended him and took him everywhere they could, my bard even ended up turning him into a bit of an apprentice uh, so he could bring him along on parties. So uh, uh, I would not say I have a perfect answer to that question. Has that character ever considered legally changing their name? Uh, no, but they did eventually betray the bard and become an enemy. Again, one of those accidents that I think if I were working too hard to control things wouldn't have happened. But since they went with it, it gave me something to respond to. Um, and in fact, that character actually, in the end, has probably hurt the party more than any other. So I guess I got my revenge. 
Do you have any other off-the-cuff NPCs that have turned into major players? Almost all my major players, uh, the way I play in the end, will come from these NPCs. I think you're going to get better organic storytelling if you really pay attention to who the characters, like, and who the players resonate with and build stuff off of that. I mean, backstory is great. I love my players who create 10 pages of backstory, and I will bring their characters in. But the advantage of having any kind of long session is along the way, you're going to discover those great characters kind of by accident. That innkeeper's son who the party convinces to take them to the keep. You'll end up picking some weird voice for them or some characteristics. They'll end up having an argument or getting along with the party. And two years later, that character shows up again, having had life experiences in alignment with the party or turning against the party. I feel like those characters are always going to have more impact than like one I create out of nowhere. Do you prefer when the party connects the dots that you've laid out correctly or when they connect the dots in a way that you didn't intend whatsoever? <laughs> the only time I'm disappointed if they connect them incorrectly is if they're not listening. I had a player for a while who was on her phone a lot and I kind of had to have a talk with her about you know, I think you're you're missing some of the things going on. Outside of that one case, I love it when they misconnect the dots. And I certainly have occasionally thought, you know, that is a far better plan than the one I had. Um, let's just behind the scenes make that the actual what's been going on here. And I would say that is by far my preference. Because again, I love being surprised. I love not knowing what's going to happen as GM. With such long sessions and such time in between the sessions, what kind of journaling do you do in order to keep the story straight? I have a giant, uh, I just use OneNote, and I just dump everything into it. Um, I'm really bad during sessions at keeping good notes, so I have to kind of discipline myself either the night after or the next day, really dumping those notes into OneNote. And uh, unfortunately, I'm not perfect at that. So there are occasional times I've had to go back um, and ask a player. I've actually started considering recording our sessions just because here and there, I'd love to be listening to my players rather than noting things down. But we'll see. Do you try to have a general overarching story or is it purely go where the wind takes you? I do. Um, I guess as an improviser, I think of I think of this for a scene, and this is also true both at the micro level for like a single like a single encounter, for a like the, the session itself, and for the overarching part of a campaign. There's always a question, and the question is usually asked pretty early on. You know, it could be as simple as, are we going to get across this bridge in an encounter? Or, uh, you know, are we going to save this NPC before they get murdered by the orc tribe? But then there's usually a bigger question of like, what is this town going to do about this like orc tribe that lives to the north? Are they going to befriend them? Are they going to wipe them out? Is the village going to be destroyed? And so it's all about those questions to me. I think having that question in mind means I can let my players go very far afield because all I need to do then is bring it back to that question. So if they forget about the orcs and they go off in suit of a magic item and they go on too long, you know, I still have to answer that question. So the orcs show up and destroy the town, or the orcs go after the magic item too. 
But I like to just, I think of those arcs as answering that question. And along the way, there's often another question that just comes up by accident. And that will often be the sort of the next big question for the next arc of the story. I'll also have kind of a world question, right? Like in the case I was talking about, it's like, are humans going to kind of move back from this domination of elves? Are elves going to be wiped out? Are elves going to fight back? And um, and sort of what does that mean for the region? I want my players at the end of the venture to look back and say, you know, we obviously didn't do everything, but our choices really mattered in terms of how this whole region was transformed in the end. What question would you say your party is currently trying to answer? Uh, I think each of my players has, uh, they have their own questions. Like, how do we operate as people whose skills are primarily around combat in a world that actually needs more diplomats? So there is that question. There's that, you know, I got into the political question of how are these humans going to coexist, these very resource-hungry humans going to coexist with the elves, and are the elves going to do anything about it? I also tend to give each of my characters a more external question. For instance, my halfling character has a vampire, a brother who's beset by vampirism, and anytime she almost can do something about it, I kind of distract her with another adventure. So eventually her character has to decide, am I going to, like, I'm kind of choosing against my brother. I've got to make a choice here. Do I have the party go help him, or do we keep dealing like with these orcs to the north? Uh, you had mentioned having to have a chat with a player that wasn't quite focused on the game. Have you ever had to deal with two players having an argument and not just in character? I have a little bit. I'm 40 years old now, and fortunately with age comes mostly more mature, uh, mostly more mature peers. But yeah, I've definitely had to ask people to sort of, you know, figure a couple things out out of character. I, I kind of talk to my players about this up front. So when I have to bring it up again, I can. I'm not a fan of like people, who, you know, party members stealing from each other. Anytime like I'm having to make dice rolls of one player member against another, I don't think, especially I don't think D&D is equipped to handle that kind of thing. There are better games. Like Shadowrun is a little better for that. Um, just because the world, you know, it exists in. Most commonly, that's the kind of thing I've had to I've had to say, you know, we need let let's find a way for these players to like each other at the same time they intensely disagree. You need to justify why your party is in this together and why they're not split up. And if they should split up, let's just do that. Turn one set of the characters into NPCs and bring in some new player characters who can kind of work together enough that the differences are interesting rather than game breaking. Has that happened often? I can only think of I guess three times I can think of it. Every time involved somebody who wanted to be playing kind of an evil character. And at least two of the cases, I solved it just by talking to them about redirecting that. Like, you don't have to think of these people as your friends. Maybe they're your marks and you're taking advantage of them. It, usually, I think you kind of stir up trouble more than your character would actually do this. Because... Self-serving characters tend to not steal from their allies uh, if they're smart about it at all. With somebody wanting to play an evil character, do you have any topics or subject matter that is strictly off-limits? I, um, 
you know, I don't do subject matter such as rape or anything that might be a trigger for one of my group members. And that's partly because I know my group very well, just because it's going to be uncomfortable for all of us to deal with any kind of sexual violence, just based on who we are as people. Um, and B, it's just kind of the tone we don't want to play in. We live in a difficult enough world that uh, most of us want even our evil to be lighthearted evil uh, when we play. But outside of certain extreme violence, no, I, I don't really have that. As a storyteller, I need my characters to be identify like I need to be able to identify with them. That doesn't mean they can't be evil. There's plenty of great charismatic evil characters who the audience is secretly rooting for in fiction, and I love those characters. I would just say it's kind of that grim evil I stay away from a bit. And that may just be personal choice. I've known some GMs who are really great at handling that kind of subject matter, and I know groups who are super comfortable dealing with it. Turning toward a more political, uh, social bent for your game's focus, is there any concern that you may come across as trying to insert your own beliefs or force your own beliefs onto the party? Obviously, I have political beliefs, but I'm a very curious person by nature. And so I think if you're trying to explore that political issue, um, role playing actually forces you to like, you've really got to play those sides honestly. I, I kind of mentioned my like elf weed loving elf who doesn't like authority. I think my sympathies are with the elves in this situation because the humans have subjugated them. But I also really try to pick some NPCs among the humans who I think honestly believe they're doing the right thing, and I really try to see things from their point of view, because I think there are very few political situations that are good versus evil. They're all, here's how I see it, here's how I see it. I try never to represent a political side I don't agree with, with a dishonest caricature character. I try to come up with somebody who sees the way that my, say, somebody who sees things differently than me politically would see it. It comes up in Shadowrun a lot, actually, where I'm not the GM, but we play these characters who, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff in Shadowrun that's very contemporary as well. And so we try to play all sides of those issues as honestly as we can. Do you have a hands-down favorite NPC? Oh, that is a good question. Um, yes, um, I... Uh, in our um, the Forgotten Realm adventure I told you about, um, we sent the party into the Underdark for like a period of, I think it was almost two years game time, and about two years in-world as well. And so I had this character, uh, because I'm a fan of those enemies who are not, you know, physically powerful, but would be really irritating in real life. So they'd had this housekeeper who the party had hired, and just kind of mistreated in terms of, um, like, they kept not returning in time to pay her, and they would just dump things on her, and they were kind of being lazy players about wanting her to do tasks like selling equipment. Um, so they really had mistreated her. So while they were in the Underdark, I just had her pretty much take over all of their, like, they had, uh, they had in the party had bought, and she took that over. She took all their stuff. Um, she kind of took all their contacts and pretended to be on the party side but turned them against the party and so it was very satisfying 
when they return from the Underdark. One, because they hadn't realized that drow equipment decays in the sunlight and they brought all this wealth with them uh, that was destroyed. And B, all their wealth they had sort of been working to gain uh, above ground had been taken. And so a good year after that was them trying to reacquire. I think it was one time I really caught the party by surprise in a way the players loved and the characters hated, uh, which is great. What was the NPC's name? Uh, her name was Alice with a Y, uh, which was, to be fair, a player's choice. I always envisioned her as looking at, like Alice from the Brady Bunch. I don't I have to look up my notes because she had a real name, but no one would ever call her anything but Alice. Was the same time when you were pleased to be in the GM role to stick it to the party a little? It was very satisfying. Here's what I'll say about like uh, anyone who performs, either actors or improvisers. One of the greatest gifts you can get is something to react to. So even though the characters hated it, I think my players were super happy for me to have thrown this at them because it was really infuriating to the characters. It really gave them a good year's worth of motivation to get all this stuff back. And it was an excuse to kind of go back through some of our old adventures, like having to re-ingratiate themselves to like local nobles and people that they had we had dealt with years before. So it's kind of an excuse to re-tour through our earlier campaign. That uh, sounds like a pretty memorable moment. Do you have, over the years, a memorable moment that just sticks out to you? Not just this game, but throughout your entire role-playing experience. Yeah, I've, I have a few that really stand out. I will say, as much as I talk about storytelling, there are those times where, like, you know, I tried a ridiculous chandelier swinging move in the middle of combat that either went so terribly wrong or so, or so well that I just love. And I remember we had a critical failure with a dragon where we had lured this kind of small young dragon we are trying to turn the dragon against a group of bandits. So we lured this dragon and we tried to convince him. It was the bandits who lured him out. And we tried to lure the bandits and the dragon into the same, um, the same area. This is not a time I was GM. I was a player at the time. And the GM had totally given us like a million clues that the bandits and the dragon were actually in cahoots. Um, and we had just totally missed them all. So we had this great moment set up where the dragon was attacked the bandits. And we hadn't even bothered to hide ourselves as well. And they just stopped. They talked to each other. And then both the dragons and bandits turned on us. And we ended up in this like four hour long running combat that our party barely survived from. I think that's hands down my favorite encounter. Especially just how strapped we were. Like we ended up with maybe two of us still standing at the end. Miles from where we'd begun the combat. The GM at the time, my friend John, I don't think he was faking the dice rolls. I think uh, if he was, he let us feel like we earned that win. What about a favorite character? I have Frédéric Francois de la Montagne, who was designed after kind of a French musketeer. This was back in 3.0 or 3.5. I can't remember. But he was a ridiculous multi-class, like ranger, rogue, maybe even a level of some kind of magic user. I can't quite remember. Uh, within that rule system but he uh he only fought for love um he assumed everybody loved him and he was pretty terrible at most things but he was very cinematic and he would only enter combat 
by swinging on something or trying to do something equally impressive. Would it be possible to meet him? Uh, why, of course, uh, I am right here. Frederic Francois de la Montagne is my name, but uh, you may call me Frederic uh, Francois de la Montagne, or even Frederic Francois, if you like. Frederic Francois, what is your greatest adventure? Hmm. Well, I have had many great adventures, but perhaps stealing the heart of the queen from my homeland is the greatest. How did that end for you? Well, it ended with both of us sad, me sad because I am exiled from the kingdom, and her no doubt sad because she is still married to the king and not with me. She pretended to be angry, but she and I both know we had true love. Is there a least favorite voice that you have to do over all these years? Ah, plenty. (laughs) I've several times made a very poor choice, but they're mostly the ones I cannot keep. I, uh, for an actor, I'm awful at accents. Uh, on our Shadowrun show, I do an intentionally terrible British accent, but I'm kind of fond of that one. I think it's, uh, yes, uh, we played this this very high-pitched boy character who had kind of a, like, hello, Mr. Scrooge, why is Christmas Day um, voice. And the minute I did it, I regretted it. It was an NPC I had to play for, like, three sessions straight, and I would leave every session with my voice hurting. Uh, I will never play that character again. <laughs> Just say he hit puberty really suddenly. We pretty much had to do that. He certainly had a cold a lot because he could barely talk by the end of those sessions. So if somebody wanted to improve their GMing or even character playing, how would you suggest they get involved with improv to begin with? Usually most cities that have any kind of improv will have an improv class. Or if you're near a college, they'll often have an improvisation group that will do some kind of workshop. Outside of gaming, it's just fun. Like, adults don't play enough. We play games sometimes, but often games have rules and you're trying to win. Whereas play itself is kind of playing without any stakes. An improv class is a fantastic thing to do. But I truly believe it will help you um, think about storytelling Think about letting go of maybe some of that control that's too easy to let creep into your role as GM um, and have more fun uh, with your players, kind of work with them a little bit more. So like I said before, that you yourself have that element of surprise. Um, If you're not in an area where um, there's any improv classes available, there's a couple of really good books, the Improv Handbook. I always recommend, it's an older book, uh, Keith Johnstone's uh, Impro, I-M-P-R-O, kind of one of the first books on contemporary improv. That's just a really fun read about status, things like that, um, and about how improvisers work. But I'd highly recommend that class if you get a chance. Whether you're introverted or extroverted, I think you'll have a chance to have a really good time, get out of your head a bit, and into kind of these roles and these stories. The anxiety you may feel about joining in a class would be the same anxiety you might feel for your first role-playing session. Yeah, I think it might be. You're going to find, though, improvisers are almost always very generous people. And even though improv feels like it's it's like making stuff up on the spot, it's actually all about working with, like, it's about taking care of each other on stage Again, most of the performers I know, I know more introverts than extroverts. Uh, I know people who are super shy, who just like really had a great time in an improv class. 
Um, and it's never about having to be super clever on the spot. We're going to start wrapping up, but before we do, I'll be asking you questions from the Pivo questionnaire, pioneered by Bernard Pivo. Okay. What is your favorite word? Um, Malephalous. Just the mouthfeel to it, or the rhythm? I think it's that. Uh, I'm actually a creative writing poetry major, so I love words that just feel good, but uh, I believe malephalous is it. What is your least favorite word? Oh, good God. Um, I would say... Um, oh man, that changes all the time. Um, wicker. I hate everything about wicker itself and the word. And the movie about the wicker man? Uh, that involved burning the wicker man, if I recall. Uh, so I at least can appreciate burning wicker. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Any undiscovered area. That feeling of discovering something new. It happens on stage, but like it happens in role-playing all that time, right? That moment you end up in uncharted territory that you know you didn't expect to end up there, your players didn't end up, you would not have gotten there without all of you working together. And that moment of connection where it's like, you know, a moment happens that would never be funny outside of the context of the moment, but in the context of the moment is either beautiful or funny or sad or all of those things combined. That possibility of finding those moments is is kind of the the cocaine of any kind of creative pursuit for me. What turns you off? I think the anxiety and control that can come about um, when people are trying too hard, maybe to, and that can include me, right? Uh, when people get tunnel vision or I get tunnel vision about wanting a very specific outcome or serving a very specific agenda or keeping something alive that just the time of it is past, maybe. Um, I think that can really kill energies. It can take energy from other projects. Um, and it can keep people from quitting when it's actually an appropriate time to quit because something uh, you've really tried in and it genuinely isn't working. What is your favorite curse word to hear from your players? Oh, um, I think it, less of a curse word. It'd be more of a painful groan that I get. But I'm always a fan of frack. It's come up in several different fantasy or sci-fi worlds. I love frack. Now, is this painful groan usually preceded by a pun? <laughs> Occasionally, I would say, uh, yes, it has been. Actually, I would say, uh, yes, I do enjoy terrifying my players with puns. Um, but maybe the more authentic swear is that pause, the silence, and the like what as you unveil that thing that the players realize, oh, we should have known this, all the hints were there, and we completely missed it and they don't even have the capacity to swear. What sound or noise do you love? Uh, I think this one. Ooh! I'm not sure if that's going to translate over the mic or not. Somewhat Tim Allen inspired? I think so. It's just, um, um, what's the, what's the PG rate or what's the rating of the show? Uh, well, I just asked you what your favorite curse word was, so go for it. We tried to come up with what would be the worst noise to hear while making love to somebody for them to make. And we came up with, if they made that noise, that would be about the worst. I was going to say, it kind of sounded like Tim the Toolman Taylor making love to an old jalopy. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good description. What sound or noise do you hate? 
I is very specific. I can't stand when people rub their fingers on corduroy. It's the I'm like getting chills just thinking about it. Was this caused by a specific incident? I never. My parents weren't killed by corduroy or anything. I uh, I think I just hate how it feels. And now that I know how it sounds, all I can think about is how it feels when people do it. And it happens a lot when people wear corduroy in your passenger seat and you're driving uh, long distances. And I had a lot of friends in college who wore corduroy. Uh, I'll move swiftly on to what game system would you like to attempt? Attempt? Um, that's a good question because I'm so much about storytelling that the game system often doesn't matter. Uh, I'm trying to think of the name of it now. Um, it's dead. There's a card game based on it I've played and it's a kind of post-apocalyptic Western setting. I want to do something post-apocalyptic, but uh, in terms of systems, I don't know if you've got a good one that, you know, tweet me at at L-B-E-F-U-S, because I want to do something that's like like in the world of like The Stand or Fallout or kind of one of those very empty but still sparsely populated worlds. What game system would you not like to attempt? <laughs> um, I will never play D&D 4th Edition again, and I say that as somebody who loves D&D. Outside of that... I've never been any of the very, I feel mean picking on any specific game system. So I'm just going to say anything that gets too into the nitty gritty and takes like 30 dice rolls to resolve a single bit of damage. Any of those truly break up the action and the sort of cinematic feel of things for me. So I lose interest pretty quickly. I'd rather do that kind of gaming on the computer. When your game concludes, what would you like to hear from your players? Oh my god, that was amazing. Uh, when can we start the next campaign? Do you have anything that you've been mulling over for starting a new campaign? Should it happen? I mentioned that guards thing, the whole like idea of cops. Because I just... I'm really interested in what a crime procedural is like in a fantasy world. Like, these cities have to operate with all kinds of sort of insanity that happens when you have population density. And, you know, in the worlds of fantasy, they have these these cities with populations that never really existed on Earth when technology was at the level uh, it is in fantasy. So I'm just super interested in what it's like being a guard in a city full of of mages and different like all kinds of weird fantastic creatures around and all these competing power structures and not necessarily having the most noble people in charge of the city to start with i would say you should have a mandatory law and order button for scene transitions <laughs> i think that's a very good point uh yes i will definitely have that built into cinescape well, it's been a pleasure to have you at the Masters Studio. Where can our listeners find you? I'm on Twitter at LBeefus. Uh, it's short for an old high school nickname, Lord Beefus. That's L-B-E-E-F-U-S. Um, I also, uh, I have a blog, but it's it may be more about improv than gaming. In fact, it is. But that's lordbeefus.com. I'm also on the Twitch channel uh, Hyper RPGs. Um, I'm on Corporate Sins every week on Wednesday night. Make sure to catch Tony's portrayal of Cromwell the Troll Butler on twitch.tv slash hyperrpg on Wednesday nights at 9 Eastern. 
or you can watch past episodes on their YouTube page. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and remember, if you're in a sticky situation, just ask yourself, what would the bear god do? Bear god.